David, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Saka. On today's show, we're going to talk about what it is to create a platform and then go a bit into your background because you have a very interesting background in where you've been, where you are, and more importantly, where you're heading to. So uh, why don't we start off with the fact that you're building a platform and do you mind explaining what that platform is and how it even came about in your mind to, to create this? Great. So, yes, I'm the co-founder of a new fintech called Wealth8 and we are building a digital wealth and investment platform that is designed for women and millennials of African heritage. And the mission really is to use this platform to provide opportunities to invest, save, but invest in globally managed portfolio portfolios. And we will do that by first kind of having financial literacy and education, which is tailored to the community. So the importance of long-term um, wealth building, how to go about wealth building. Then finally, we will then provide you with a tools to actually invest your money in portfolios, which we managed um, by kind of professional portfolio managers. So no, that's interesting. In terms of, I mean, actually starting out a, a platform, where did that idea come from? Why did you decide I need to build a platform? What was the need that you saw out there that was so compelling? Oh man, I got to do this thing. Well, where did that impetus come from? Right. So it really came twofold. So I'll talk about my personal experiences, like um, when I first left university and went to the world of work. So to be very honest, it probably took me several years before I actually understood the concept of, oh, that your income is not just your income that you should spend. And after several years, when I kind of got that realization of, you should start saving or start building wealth, but there were different options out there and it wasn't as simple as either spend it or don't spend it. So I started doing some research into kind of wealth management. And at that point I kind of discovered a few like traditional kind of wealth management, but there were kind of two main barriers to entry. One was either they had, you need to have X amount to start doing so, which in a weird way kind of agreed with what's some of the things, my perceptions beforehand, which is you must be wealthy to start building wealth. And then the second was, even if you were to meet the minimum thresholds, it was a high percentage in order for you to do so, which again, you might be thinking, oh, well, what's the benefit of me doing that at this point in time? So through those experiences, that's when I first initially kind of started understanding that whilst I look at other industries where technology, so you've got payments, current accounts, even savings to um, some sort of extent, technology has really opened up access to accessing finance. And through that wealth manager space, my initial experience, I started doing some research and realized this was the hugely untapped market that hadn't been um, kind of tapped to by technology. Then second to that was my current co-founder, Bimpo Country. So we, uh, got discussing, she currently runs a wealth management service in the UK that basically targets African, high net worth African families that want to invest in um, global portfolios or invest in the UK or America. So not me, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> seen, seen, one, seen one day for you. But these discussions, what came about was, oh, and she had the same understanding around, you have groups who are currently underserved. So as a woman herself, um, kind of put a journey there and like not having started taking care of her finances till a later stage because she was in a maybe traditional married family and kind of saw that as her husband to do. So we got talking about her services and how can this be, a, how can you provide more people access to the services? And we had this same aligned vision around how we could use technology to do so. So that was the first thought around technology. But again, technology is a big word and you have to work backwards into, okay, what is the problem we want to solve? How do we want to solve this problem? And then how would we use technology as an enabler? So technology is not the solution. 
it's only an enabler to actually um, deliver on the outcomes that we're here to achieve. So, and probably about a year now, we've been discussing this as a proposition, going back and forth, doing some research, um, doing market research into the consumer base. And let's say the beginning of this year is when we decided to kind of full throttle and like we're going to bring a platform out to market and yeah, hopefully solve the problems which we've identified. Yeah, one of the major problem that you identified there is one that irks me as well, which is sort of this notion or the way society is structured in such a way that some people have access to certain things based on maybe a history of just having money or whatever it is. They have access to certain financial instruments versus others that don't. And that to me is an inequality that I think is is unfair. You know, you don't want to reward people for things that are outside of their control. I, I feel like you should try and reward people for the good habits, um, the way they you know manage their money, all that kind of stuff. That's a better way to incentivize the, the system such that people um, uh, you know, are heading in the right direction and have access of opportunity, equal access of opportunity. And so for me, that's something that really hits home. When you're creating the, this platform, uh, you know, when I think of the United States, there's a, there's certain asset investment classes that are only available to people of a certain net wealth, like 1 million, you can invest in hedge funds and things like that. When you're creating this platform, are there regulatory constraints into what you're allowed to service or show to someone versus not? And that's where that barrier comes in of you need to have X amount of wealth and not, is it a regulatory thing or is it just an industry thing that we look for clients of this amount of wealth? Yeah, so it's more of a, they're probably twofold. So the, the main driver is not regulatory, but there is a regulatory element, which I'll come on to. So from traditionally, it has been a a wealth manager tends to be a grown older white male that therefore, when they're looking after creating products or putting products together, they it's been created maybe for a, a, a specific group. And that's traditionally been the um, history of wealth management. And so today you still probably have very few female wealth managers and then probably even more fewer ethnic minority wealth managers as such. That's kind of been an industry place. And over time, it's beginning to change. But even in the UK, for instance, a black African family, for every one pound that a British white family have in savings or wealth, it'll be 10 pence for a black African family. And that's been a historical thing in the past, which again, some of the inputs we can't control, i.e. if this group maybe have less income, you can't pull that lever. But the fact is, as we were saying earlier, it doesn't matter how much you make, the principle is you don't spend 100% of your income. And that understanding of, okay, I spend 60% and I put this amount here and I put this away for a rainy day, is a really a principle that we need to push into the community. On the regulatory piece, there is an element with what you call being a sophisticated investor versus uns unsophisticated. And traditionally, before you can engage in some products or some services, i.e. going out to the market to even pick stocks directly, most platforms would make you kind of justify that you are sophisticated. So you understand what the, you, like as simple as it maybe you understand it could go up and go down. Like some, not everyone understands that. Everyone thinks I invest and my money goes up. Yeah. Understanding the difference between asset classes, understanding the difference between bonds and stocks, which are fair because we're, if you can't, if you're not suitable, so kind of suitability, if you're not suitable, you can't access some markets as such. But that's where tech find, uh, fintech shouldn't just be about like, like an outcome. It's okay, how do we, we're not going to make you a, a superstar investor overnight, but it is important for you to understand in this modern day and age, the basics around um, the markets, the financial markets, wealth, if you want to partake in it, because that's, that's what provides opportunity when you have like equal access to education, but in a way that you understand and is familiar to you to kind of deliver on the outcomes you want to achieve.
That's a very difficult thing to do to try and educate people uh, as they're going onto a platform. You know, there's two ways you can do it. You can either already sift out people that are already educated to a certain level, or you can actually take on the hard work of educating people along this journey. Why did you decide to actually go down the path of educating or informing or um, an element of learning within that experience to come onto your platform and to use it? Yeah. So for me, it's really important. So I always look at a long-term kind of economic prosperity and um, whilst you get to the point talking about opportunities, that happens later on in life. And education for me is like, it's a huge part of actually having opportunities later in life. So in this scenario, whilst it's not like basic education, but what we're trying to do is empower people to actually also be able to make decisions themselves. So instead of it being, oh, just give me your money and we'll invest on your behalf, because you're getting one benefit in the sense that you are participating in the market, but then you have scenarios like, okay, COVID hits and the markets are dropping and people then don't know, understand. Like I know a lot of um, people I spoke to during that period, oh my gosh, the markets are crashing. It's like, oh yes, but if you're invested in portfolios, in the long term, it's fine because that is what portfolios are made to withstand. They go up, they go down. But understanding the difference between, okay, that's a long-term investment that you don't want to see the benefits of to 10 years time. So sometimes it's not like basic information, but it's principles that everyone, I believe, should have the rights to be aware of. And by fostering that education, you then hope that generation, when they have children, they start to instill these principles at an earlier age so that um, by the point the children are at that point, they really have that information. So, and what we say is not as given advice, it's really information is readily available, but we're going to find information that is, has context depending on your different backgrounds, um, more targeted millennials, women, people from African backgrounds, sometimes taking nuances in place um, with people from African backgrounds. So we always joke and say, like, if you're maybe an uh, English family, it tends to be maybe more simple. You've got a partner and two kids. But if you're from a Nigerian and other African family, it could be very complex. Oh boy, tell me about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, like, yeah. So it's my art, it's not my art. Like there's, 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 so, there's so much more in play. <laughs> yeah. You have scenarios of, oh, mum might call you, oh, your cousin in the village has asked for this. Yeah. Or we have to put money together for this. Yeah. And to some other families, they might not understand those kind of same nuances. So it's really important to take that into factor when you kind of come into the educational kind of knowledge base piece. Yeah, I've met family members that I never even knew existed. Exactly. I'm like, what? We're related? It's like <laughs> yeah. third cousin. Yeah. Or you call someone your cousin that actually isn't your cousin. Exactly. Like family friend. Yeah. yeah, that happens all the time, all the time. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I, I have like uncles that are younger than me and all that yes. kind of stuff. You know, it's just an interesting dynamic. It's very um, dynamic. But um, no, that's that's quite interesting. You know, creating a platform is... It's not easy because there's sort of a supply and a demand side of things, right? If you're, imagine the guys at Uber, you know, they had to have enough Ubers on there to encourage people to even want to use it use so it. that you can always ensure that the, uh, the the demand and supply links up, right? Yeah. You never want to try and get an Uber and there's none available, exactly. you'll stop using that platform. How do you manage those two sides to this platform or are you divorced from that de demand and supply kind of balance? So that's a very interesting question. So. I would talk from our, our personal experience, what we're doing, but I guess most of the general principle, I would always say that you're in platform or product development, what you should be doing is always tackling your biggest risk or issue first. So if your biggest risk is potentially not getting suppliers, then you should be tackling that in the first instance. And that should be what you're trying to um, alleviate those or mitigate against those risks. In our scenario, so our demand is from our users to use the platform. 
in going live, we're going to be working with a very large kind of known asset management firm that will be our initial provider of some of these funds, which are managed. And for us, I think that supply is enough for what we're trying to achieve. And then very quickly, our priority is early validation. So we want to prove there is some demand. So at present, we have a our kind of MVP as such. We've got a website that's live where users can come on. We're already started producing content. We've got a weekly newsletter. There's already thought leadership. And then there's ability for you to pre-register your interest. And for us, seeing that early pre-registration is very important because it drives telling us there is a demand in what we are building. And so that early demand in our situation has been kind of important to show that people do need the solution and to validate our big assumption. Because our assumption is we need a product and a platform to tailor specifically to this community. And the quicker you can validate that or disvalidate that, that's very important to us. In terms of building a platform as well, there is the aspect of guiding people along the journey of that building that platform. And then there's sort of autonomy, letting people just use the platform and be freelance with it. You know, I, I was hoping you could touch a bit on that. But even before we get to that, in my own current role, I'm always having to do, you know, customer journey, user testing, all that kind of stuff. It could be anything from SurveyMonkey. We have a list of assumptions. We call them LOFA. Um, and then, you know, show them uh, a prototype and get their feedback, all those types of things, which is pretty extensive. But you guys have sort of created the um, the platform and then you're kind of doing the user testing along that. Is, is that correct? Or did you do some of this very initially before you actually started this? So we probably split it more into customer validation in terms of the need and hypotheses of the solution as such. So not kind of detailed, here is a set of wireframes, how it's going to look, but more here is what the solution will do and how it's going to work. Here are the problem statements, our assumptions, and there was customer validation against the problem statements and the high level against against the solution to those problems. So that's one exercise which we kind of completed. In terms of detailed user testing, what we are going to be doing is that what we should have a version of the platform through live right, August for early testing. And we will take a kind of small group of friends and family in the very first instance, but then also identify another group of kind of impartial, <laughs> impartial users that won't have any uh, kind of reasons to say otherwise, and also get them to go through the journey and give us early feedback on the platform itself. We took this approach because we are, we probably be, the development of the platform probably started, probably not July, May. We're actually having a quite quick go to market with the platform itself. And this is kind of like an MVP 2.0, if that's like even a thing, where it's, we haven't started from total scratch. We're working with a third party partner who had a kind of a basis, like a white label um, proposition on the table. And what we're able to do is define our product vision and work with the developers to configure and customization where required, but really a principle of the quicker to market you want to go, let's let the platform do what it needs to do. So that's our first instance. Then once we go live with MVP 2.0 and we then bring out our, we're then working on our mobile app. So we web app in the first instance and then we're working on our mobile app. We will then do more kind of user in touch to the mobile app and the next version, because at that point we probably have more kind of freedom in what we're trying to build. And also we'll be adding new product features and services where we want to make sure that the user is involved in that journey. So 
you know, a lot of people don't know that in this technology game, so to speak, right, there, there are white label solutions, which you touched on, that enable you to do things without you having to reinvent the wheel. Because exactly. that, that is a big part of it. There's so many moving parts, everything from creating a Gmail account to getting a username to, you know, all sorts of things. But there are facilities out there that allow you to white label, white labeling, well, I want to explain to the audience a little bit, but yeah. white labeling is essentially taking something that exists and just sort of putting the marketing spiel on it to make it look like it's your own product, right? When you were going through that process of figuring out what partners you want to work with um, to white label and use that on your platform, what was that experience like? Was it difficult? Was it not? Did you have to vet them? Did you not? Was it based on capabilities that they have? Or how, how did you go about that process? Yeah, so fortunately, so my previous role um, before taking this on, so I had experience in product management and building digital solutions at KPMG for large banks, challenger banks and whatnot. So I had very extensive experience in kind of vendor and vendor assessment, vendor selection. So what we defined out was a set of criteria from kind of cool from like some customer facing features to the kind of operational admin usability. So, okay, if I need to do some things in the back end or change some fields or do a manual KYC, which of these solutions allows me the most interaction without me having to contact um, third party developers or something of the sort. And then I guess cost versus time to market were the, were the core criteria pieces that went in. And we then took out, kind of defined the proposition overview, went out to vendor, kind of sent across on Excel all these questions, uh, total number of users you managed, like very, these kind of very kind of detailed questions. But then importantly to us was having someone that can come on us with this on the journey. And who understood what we were building and why we wanted to get where we wanted to go to. And in that, there was one that did kind of clearly stand out to the others. So if anyone's got experience in maybe kind of reaching out to a company, most companies will tell you they could do everything because, yeah, they'll send a nice PowerPoint deck and it'll be like, yes, yes, yes. But the nitty gritty comes down a little bit later where, you, where you're dealing on a day to day. So we were fortunate in the, part, in the company that we partnered with, there was a previous relationship and the founder there really understood the need in terms of the problem and the problem statement and why we were embarking on this journey. And we were able to kind of highlight our long-term vision and they were able to explain to us at the beginning how they will fit into what parts they can't do, which parts they can do. Um, it was very important to us to have, um, don't get technical, but APIs essentially just, I always refer to APIs as Lego. So it's um, you, a kid knows what they want to build and you have different Lego pieces and having the ability to have multiple Lego pieces to put them together means you could build whatever toy you want to do in the future. They had a very good and understandable kind of API suites, which means in the future we could integrate with third parties. We could um, build a mobile app. We're going to expand out into um, Nigeria and Ghana in the first instance, but to other African countries to give users there the ability to invest in global portfolios. So, so having someone that was really in it for the long term and understood where we we're trying to get to and was going to be a partner and not just a provider of technology. And part of building that long-term relationship is just the relationship itself. You mentioned that you knew some people in your network that could put you in touch with these people, or you had even worked with some of them at KPMG and things like that. What, how big a role do you think relationship played in not just finding these third-party suppliers that you can work with, but in even getting the investments that you're you know, starting up with or uh, marketing yourself? What, what relationships were key or crucial to you getting to this point? And then how do you think it's going to play on in the, in the next phase of your development? So um, just as an overall thing, I think relationships are huge. In the world of business or the world of startup business, anything of the sorts, 
trust is a really big um, factor in terms of trusting, because at each point you ask yourself to trust you. So if I pitch to you, I'm saying trust my pitch. If I come to you and say, can you introduce me to this person, X, Y, Z, you have to read my email and go, I trust you that you're going to do what you've said in the email. Oh, can you help me with some marketing? Every, every point you do something is trust. And over your lifetime, you build, you have very many different relationships in all different contexts. And at some point you start to realize these relationships are um, beneficial in the sense that if you have trust, you can lean on someone that's an expert who has access to various different things the same way people can lead on you in that journey. So relationships are super key and it's the key right now and it will be even more key as we continue to proceed and we go along. In this factor, with our vendor selector, for instance, it was, we needed we needed deep trust because one, we were coming into this. So my co-founder is a wealth manager. I'm not a wealth manager, but I'm a technology person where two of us, we are not, we're going to be scaling up our team at some point once we go live and we start on investments. But we need to be able to have Frank, like we need to lean onto one, the technology team, because there's no tech team as such. And we have to speak to you as a product owner, as a business person, as candidly, as stupidly, as whatever's possible, just be honest and just talk to us back. And like, it's very fine. Like a, a, a good working relationship with a developer and like a BA or product manager is always very important because you just talk candidly. So we needed that. And along the way as well, we need to be able to, so that was very important to have that in, in that space there. We're fortunate to have a great team of board of advisors who are working with us already. And again, this has been invaluable in the sense that we've got um, one of our board of advisors, Mr. Arnold Ekper, for instance, the former chairman of Echo Bank International, which is a huge global African bank and chairman of Atlas Mara. And he has been through his journey on many fintechs, um, small startups. He's an angel investor. And he has very candid conversations, conversations <laughs> with us. I always joke with them, Bimpe, when I jump off the phone. Ooh, like yeah but yeah. i like it it's good because yeah. they make you they ask you questions they, they ask you real questions can you think of any like what were some things <laughs> they hit home it sounds like there was some stuff that was said like. <laughs> so it's a platform so i remember having conversations around okay competitors and i'm kind of defining oh who are competitors in terms of they must provide the similar services to what we're providing so oh, we provide kind of robot advisory service it's execution it's not picking direct stocks and we have, so I kind of did a detailed competitor analysis against who our competitors were. And so in the pitch deck, you meant to have like just a few kind of competitors and this D2 Excel, maybe a few more, but his piece was, oh, actually there should be, there's, there's so many, he named so many other companies that are competitors as such. And I thought, oh, but they're not competitors because they don't do X, Y, Z. And a very simple and understood term is, but if it's a finance company in a digital space, and whether right now they don't do kind of robo advisory and is more user selecting, if tomorrow they see what you're doing and they just decide to do it, given that they're really in that space, they can just come in and so therefore they're competitive. And that was just like one kind of random example, but maybe you think it's like, okay, actually it's true. So we should maybe call them secondary competitors, but we should be thinking as a founder, they should be on my mind and kind of, I should be thinking about them. Cause if I don't think about them and in two years time, that simple statement is made and it gave some examples of how this has been done. Oh, wow. You get blindsided because you assumed because an assumption and you always have to validate your assumptions, but that was one case. So that was one, um, that's one example of kind of these conversations and we're kind of in the background still working on it. So we're going to start raising our pre-seed around uh, hopefully in September. And so we started working on the pitch deck and just 
the business plan. And again, just very kind of frank conversations in terms of assumptions. And But it's good because at this point, when you meet an investor, you need to be able to listen to their questions, their critiques, all of that. So the earlier you can have some of that from close people to your team, board of advisors, that is very, very useful um, to kind of get prepared for that. So It's amazing how someone can literally give you like two sentences of something yeah. and you're like, oh man, I wasn't even thinking about exactly, that. That exactly. completely shifted my way of thinking, exactly, you know? Exactly. Uh, that's why you always need advisors. And that's not an easy thing to do either, man, to have people on your team that are, or even in your circle, that are willing to challenge you on what you think mm -hmm. and to challenge your assumptions, make you think in a different way. As you're sort of building this, how are you going to ensure that you don't fall prey to some of the things that you're blindsided to, right? How are you going to keep your radars and your antennas up to the competition, to a different perspective? Do you have a plan or how are you going to you know, manage that yeah. process? So still to today, and it's not an exact science, but I try to, so I've got like a day a week where I kind of call it like my non-working day. But what I'm actually doing on that day is like, so I dedicate to, so I dedicate to kind of wealth eight first because I know I kind of balance my time between two pieces of work, but then in wealth eight, I try and not complete tasks. So, and I really- You try always, not to complete tasks? I try not to complete tasks, yes. So what I do in these days is that I've got kind of on my notion page of just like dropping down thoughts, food for thoughts that come to me during the week. If I'm doing some research that come to me and I take these days out to unravel some of these thoughts, but there's no outcome. So that's the important piece that so there's no, I tick this off right now. It is me engulfing myself in a few problem statements, thinking they always unravel some more um, either problem statements or thoughts or, hey, have you thought about contacting this person? But I get the most value from that day. I go for walks. But what I try and do that day is really focus on just thinking. And I'm thinking because I understand that I connect. This is such a big, uh, such a big thing I'm trying to achieve. That whole like end mission, you want to expand here, you want to expand out to Africa. And it's all about... So it's a big mission we're trying to achieve, a big customer base. And I know that we can't get blindsided by going on this journey. Am I reading different founders' stories? I think it's important for me at this present moment just to always be open and be thinking and just try to always be like one step ahead, but just thinking because so much comes out of just thinking. And I think we can get lost in doing. And the real value, especially as a founder, that's always meant to be visionary, is to be able to think strategically. So... Hopefully that will help me as we go forward to kind of identify some of these things. And then me and the founder, we can sit down together and we can have discussions um, about some of these topics and let's make sure that we're always actively on it. Yeah, that reminds me of DARPA. It's sort of the American Research Institute organization. And they were trying to figure out a way for the military to communicate with themselves or something like that. And out of that was born the internet, right? Mm. So it was a sort of a secondary thing, but it's, it's interesting how unrelated research or just things that you wouldn't think would be applicable exactly. end up becoming applicable in what you're doing. I mean, that's the foundation of the internet. And they were thinking of military communication and ultimately became, you know, the internet, which had business ramifications, exactly. right? I mean, it has societal ramifications in general. Some of those unrelated things become more relatable uh, as time goes on. Is there anything that you can think of that was so unrelated to what you were doing, whether it's you saw a marketing ad or you saw, I don't know, some investor have a pitch and, and do certain things that, you know, really piqued your attention or what's the most unrelated thing that actually became relatable to what you're doing? That's a good question. So I think for me, probably... To your question, I don't know how I don't know how like stand on maybe how like directly related this is, but 
what I have been doing is, so I'm a big fan of reading kind of founder stories and some unlikely founders. So um, at present, and not to say controversial, but I used to, I started doing lockdown because I started reading like Kanye West, just like his, various of his stories. I don't know if I may agree or some of you may disagree, but um, what I got the most out of kind of just going, just understanding his journey and his story was really, if I take a step back, he's, he's had, he's had up and downs, but he's actually been, he's always been an entrepreneur and his whole thing has always been challenging the status quo. And ever since he was at school, going to university, he was always told he can't do something. He was always shown the barriers to what was in front of him, whether it was before he started off in music or before he decided to go into music, the barrier parents, okay, he drops out of school, bad thing. Goes into music, next thing there's barriers to him becoming a rapper. And the same people who respect him right now and like call him one of the greatest rappers were telling him, you can't be a rapper, you should stick to what you need to do. Okay, he leaves that. Then he comes out and goes, okay, actually, do you know what? But whilst I was in school, what you guys didn't know before I started playing the piano, before I started rapping is I love fashion. And he brought up fashion. And again, people were like, you can't do this. He brings out his first fashion, he does his first fashion design show, he gets terrible reviews. He then leaves, and this is the bit of Gomi, he, he interned, I, I don't remember that, I think it was Cavadi or, I can send check this, either Cavadi or one of these Italian fashion houses. Like he went away to intern for a year. Nobody knows this. Like he, so he accepted the criticism. And whilst in the background and the front end, people were telling him, oh, he was so arrogant, he said this. He went away to do the homework. And he went to go be an intern for a year. Nobody knew that. And then he learnt and came back and did another uh, fashion shoot. And they got favorable reviews but the reviews didn't touch on oh but he actually went to go and do his homework and post that okay the nike thing happens and that's but what i've learned from his story was always been able to do is that when you take on this toll you need to be willing to learn from anyone or everyone and like so the more you speak listen to so never say something in front of someone and be fearful of the criticism because you don't want to say things in front of people that's going to say yes all the time and you don't want to speak to people who are just going to agree with oh but that's your problem that's your vision so the unlikely place that advice comes from is just by talking to some people and someone says, oh, have you thought about this? Oh, interesting. So I'm just giving like as a, as a normal person here, like, oh, but what about X? So it's actually having these conversations with just like, I guess not random people, but like random friends, random people, but people I wouldn't expect to understand like the problem statement, understand technology, but being able to then give me food for thought. Cause even sometimes I write it down on my phone and then I'm just thinking about it on Tuesday because it's, oh, I, I did, I did not think of that. That's a good thing. That's a good point you raise. So it's been able to speak. So the more I speak and then listening, but it's like, be welcome to what's going to be heard. Don't be, don't take criticism as the end point, but to take it, take it away and then digest it and make it what you want, you want from that. It takes a lot of humility to do something like that, to become an intern when you have millions of dollars and you can actually hire people to do that on your behalf. Yeah. You know, that's something I think that needs to be practiced a bit more just in general in this sort of tech and startup industry. But I mean, I try and be humble and look at people as, you know, not an hierarchy or system like that, but everyone has different um, storages or units of information, whether someone's a kid or whether someone's an mm. adult or whether someone comes from here and there, having that mindset that you can learn from anyone, regardless of where they fall, I think um, is something that's really important and really valuable and, and something that you kind of need to be cognizant of. In, in other words, be humble enough to know that you can learn from other people. Exactly. That, to me, that's that's a key thing. Exactly. In, in your experience, you know, I don't know if you have an ego or whatever it is, but how are you going to try and check yourself um, from becoming... Uh, or 
how can I say, you know, not becoming blindsided to the fact that you can continuously learn and ensuring that you're you're humble, not just yourself, but you're going to have to build a team, right? And that team is going to have to be humble enough to learn. How have you thought about instilling hu- humility in what you're doing um, from a platform perspective, from a company culture perspective, all those different things? Great. So I think from my point of view, I've always been, um, I think fortunately, maybe in, in growing up, I was fortunate that I lived in kind of many different countries. I attended so many different schools. And I think from my experiences, what that put on me, one was understanding of different perspective and the value of, not the value of perspective, but knowing that what this group or this person says cannot just be the end or be all, that there's different perspectives and different experiences. So I think fortunately that has helped who I am today. And like, I'm very open to interaction and meeting other people and listening. And then the value of collaboration, I've seen that um, in my times growing up. And with my work I do outside of World Fates with Founder Vine, for instance, I go and say, we would not have been able to achieve what we've achieved if it wasn't for pure collaboration and nobody's voice is higher than anybody else's voice. We've implemented some of the greatest campaigns that, oh, someone just mentioned it, it's like I random thoughts like two minutes before the call ended. Okay, great. Let's work on that and let's move it forward. So I've seen the power of listening to people and then people's perspectives being heard. Then the power of actually when you collaborate and more people, like more hands are better than one, two heads are different better than one, the value in people coming together to do that. And I'm a very big believer in, I don't, whilst I like to learn, so if you tell me something about marketing that I didn't know about, I want to go and read about it to understand. But a big believer in let people do what they're best at. And you may always hear this principle, okay, you want to hire people who are better, they could do a job better than you. And like sometimes I get thrown around a lot, but the fact is, actually, yes, you need to, I know my strengths and I, I want to, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to develop any other strengths. Like I don't mind being understanding it, but I want people who are experts in what they're doing so I can be able to trust them. And if I work in something that I believe this is your field or this is what you know, one, I need to be able to trust you and let you do your job. But then also understand that it's not experts. Sometimes a little kid has different perspective. Like kids these days, they, they use platforms more than we use platforms, right? So if, if I'm talking to my 11 year old cousin, and she mentioned something, I need to respect her. Do you know what? She knows how to use an iPad or phone better than most of our target users. And I need to listen. And like, I I could choose to do what with it afterwards, but I must always listen and never like put down someone's thought because I think um, I'm I'm over that or above that. I have a feeling if you listen to a lot of kids, you're gonna end up making a lot of TikTok ads coming up (laughs) soon, man. But maybe, you know what, that's a future generation, right? You need to build wealth from when you're young. So maybe TikTok will be our route to market for the next set of, um, yeah, next set of minutes. Yeah, you never know, man. (laughs) Exactly. You know, TikTok is pretty interesting of a platform. You know, it's it's so different to everything else I've used, but- uh, Have you got TikTok? I do, I'm experimenting with it at the moment. I'm trying to see where it takes me. Are we Um, gonna make a TikTok video at the end of this? We should, we should, let's do one. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't come off as corny. Okay, yes. those guys trying to be cool whatever it is you know like but uh no it's a very interesting platform but um speaking of platforms like you know what you guys are actually trying to do uh what's your your uh, biggest concern when it comes to creating this platform are are you nervous about certain things uh what's what are some of the the road marks you think you might run into or some of the hurdles you might run into that'll potentially be red flags so maybe two key ones so um Regulation is tight, so it's not a hurdle. It's just, it's a, and you would understand this as well from being kind of the fintech space, it's you choose to come and play this game, there's there's regulation. So whilst I could be a user or the visionary and define kind of end products and this is the journey we're going to go on, this is how it's going to work, this is where we're going to be, 
it all needs to be done within regulatory constraints. So understanding and having my experience and background, having worked in financial services for banks, challenger banks, I knew the biggest, the biggest reasons why banks don't innovate is regulation. So it's, it's, it tends to be a, everything must go through compliance risk and get so much sign offs that sometimes the, the benefits of the business case, it's kind of, that's, it's just not that beneficial once you then have to go through all these things and someone has to take that risk. So just understanding the regulation that exists within the financial services space and, and my experience with that, I know that will maybe hurdles or maybe hurdles going forward just at different points in time. And I may kind of not dampen innovation, but like we have to innovate within that. So that's one. Two is not like a, it's not like a risk something that's keeping me up at night, but it's, it will be a risk if it doesn't happen. And um, great. The biggest assumption is that people, this is a need and we have people who are pre-registered and they've got to sign up and they use a platform. But I think very quickly, once we go live, then I keep saying that all my assumptions in that kind of business plan, I have them, but in a month's time, once we go live in a month, I can start to validate these assumptions and amend the assumptions. So in a month, it's easy, you sign up. If you're pre-registered, you sign up. And then the use case, the test is quite easy. Like, are you putting your, are you putting your money in the platform? And if, if that doesn't happen within the first few months, then okay, we've got to start changing some of these assumptions. So, but that's, I think that's a risk with any um, platform business that if you don't have the users. And back to your question earlier about supply versus demand, it won't, it's not just good to have the supply in that scenario, we need there to be demand and having a supply is not, it's not hugely beneficial if after a couple of months, users are not demanding the services. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, David. Really thanks appreciate so much it. For having me. Where can people find you if they want to hear more about what you're doing and what you're up to? Great. So you can find me on LinkedIn at David Fisayo, David Fisayo. <laughs> <laughs> and you can either visit us on wealth-8.com or follow us on Instagram at wealth8 underscore. Fantastic. Thank you so Fantastic. much. Thank you. Cheers.